0: Father, as we come to your Word today, we are reminded that your Word has power and that your Word does your work. And so, Lord, we pray that as we study your Word, give us understanding of a chapter that um, many would just skip over, uh, that would be easier to skip over, but, Lord, we want to understand your Word And so we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he would give us illumination, that we would understand this and apply this to our lives and be changed by it. For the glory of Christ, it's in his name we pray. Amen. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And as you get there, you're going to see that we are going to be encountering a lot of names today. Kurt, do you want to do this? <laughs> i got to do it. Um, we're going to be encountering a lot of names today. But as an evangelical Protestant church, we fully affirm what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and that is that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete trained for every good work. The idea that the Word of God accomplishes the work of God is central is is foundational to everything that we do it's foundational to every sermon i preach it's foundational to everything that we do and yet i have to confess that there is nothing that puts that foundation to the test nothing that might shake our confidence in what paul said to timothy nothing that might test our confidence in what paul said to timothy like coming across a chapter full of names that we all struggle to pronounce. A chapter that's just filled with a genealogy, a genealogical table, like the one we find in Genesis chapter 10. And I can honestly say that this might be the most difficult chapter, the most difficult passage I have ever preached. I have to admit that for two days I sat there looking at it kind of blankly, like, what am I supposed to do with this, Lord? And being reminded, 2 Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, and so it's it's certainly the most difficult passage thus far in our study of, of Genesis. It might be the most difficult passage I've ever preached. One commentator that I loosely follow through this series uh, wrote this. He said, "quote It may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this." End quote. Uh, And I want to think that I have a lot more confidence in the Word of God than that, however. And so you might imagine that I was happy to see a great expositor from yesteryear like James Montgomery Boyce say that this chapter is, quote, "...surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire Word of God." Oh, well, that, that gave me a little bit more enthusiasm about preaching it. So having spent the past week studying this text, I have to agree. This text is actually extremely interesting and extremely important, and it is actually, believe it or not, extremely relevant to the modern Christian mind. What is it that makes a chapter like this so difficult? Well, I could give you a whole list, but I'd say the primary reason, some people would skip it, or some people would find it uninteresting is because it's filled with just name after name after name, many of which we are unfamiliar with, most of which we struggle to pronounce, and many of which we will never hear about again in all of Scripture. And yet, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. The Word of God accomplishes the work of God. I believe that, and I want you to believe that too. That is central to everything that we do. And to deny that, to deny that the Word of God does the work of God, even as it relates to a crazy chapter like this, is to actually disagree with God. It's to actually disagree with God, and and we don't want to do that. So further, we're going to see that many, uh, many of these names are names that are going to pop up again as we go through Genesis and, and the Old Testament, and they will play a significant role in the chapters and even the books that follow after this. So this chapter serves as something of a, of a, of a bridge between what we would refer to as the, the prehistoric world, that is the world kind of be, before the flood at least, uh, and the historical ancient world which starts with Abraham in the next chapter. This chapter, chapter 10, tells us that a great amount of time and many generations passed between Noah and Abraham. So in one sense, this this chapter is kind of like a fast-forward button Uh, on the narrative of Genesis. If you guys have watched the Indiana Jones movies, uh, you know that when when he's going someplace, they kind of cut to an overlapping scene where it just shows a map and it shows the plane like just kind of tracing its its route. That's kind of what this chapter does. It's the same type of thing. This chapter is rooted in some of the passages that we've already seen. For example, we've already seen that God commanded Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? We saw God command that a couple times back in chapter 9. And then we read this in chapter 9, 19, speaking of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, And that's what this chapter is all about. Verse 1 summarizes what this chapter is all about. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So, we see that Noah had his his three sons that we've already met, whom we've already met. And thus, three times in this chapter, we're going to see lists of names broken down. Separated from one another according to their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And I should add that even the skeptics, even skeptical scholars, have attested to the genealogical accuracy of this chapter, of the table of nations presented here. William Albright, for example, he's not a scholar that I would recommend. He's, he's not conservative in any sense with, uh, with his theology, um, and, I, and I normally wouldn't consider him to be a reliable scholar of the Bible, but he said this of this chapter. He said that it, quote, stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. he goes on to say the table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document end quote so that's something for us to keep in mind skeptics have tried to break this chapter apart and they can't this chapter has been shown to be extremely extremely accurate and while we're going to start out by by looking at the sons of uh, and descendants of Japheth we should be very cautious by the way about making too many assumptions of the text, like trying to figure out if there's a birth order here and what the significance of the birth order might be. There's no consensus on the order in which Noah's sons were born. And so we want to be careful about speculating about that. Uh, You know, if Scripture isn't abundantly clear on something, like it does with Jacob and Esau, the Bible is explicit in who comes first, who's the older son between the two. So if it doesn't do that, we should be very careful not to speculate too much about it. So, We're going to start by looking at the descendants of Japheth, remembering that back in chapter 9, verse 27, Noah said something about Japheth. He prophesied a blessing over Japheth. He said this, he said, May God enlarge Japheth. In fact, Japheth's name means to enlarge. And God certainly did that. That's what we're going to see in the next few verses. Verses 2-5 to say this, The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. So far, so good. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togamara. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples, remember that. You can sleep through the rest of it. The names aren't going to mean a whole lot to you. But make note of this, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So those of us who descend from a European heritage or a European ancestry descended from the line of Japheth. His descendants would occupy what is in our day and age most of modern day Europe and Asia, the European and Asian continents. And you see the phrase that Moses gives them in verse 5. They are coastland peoples. They're they're referred to as coastland peoples. Remember, the ark landed in what is uh, most likely modern-day Turkey. So the idea is that they spread themselves out as far as the ocean would let them, as far as the coast would allow them to, going north and both to the the far east and to the far west of where the Ark landed. And that means, believe it or not, that Europeans and Indonesians are actually closely related to one another. Until the 19th century, only the Bible made this connection between Europeans and Indonesians. They appear to be Entirely separate, completely separate groups of people, but as scholars have traced the history of language, the history of linguistics, backwards in history. What they have found is that the languages of both Western Europe and India both descended from a common language somewhere in Central or Eastern Europe. And so this is a, a fairly recent linguistic You know, academic discovery, relatively speaking. And yet, Genesis 10 has made this point abundantly clear for over 3,000 years. It just took science, how long? 2,800 plus years to catch up. These descendants of Japheth moved as far as the European Atlantic coastline and as far as the Pacific and Indian Ocean coastlines to the east. Hence their name, Coastland Peoples. So already we see that the Word of God is doing the work of God, don't we? We already see that. Whether you realize it or not, given the, the discovered linguistic links in recent centuries, how can this not completely increase your confidence in the accuracy, in the veracity, in the reliability of Scripture? Of course it does. You know These, these aren't fairy tales. Fairy tales aren't, are, are never proven to be true. They're not myths. Myths aren't true either. This is being presented as an historical fact. And the scientific and linguistic discoveries of recent years confirm what the Bible has always said. And we can trust that what the Bible presents as historical fact is indeed historical fact. Remember, true science will always line up with what Scripture says. Science, therefore, cannot dictate how we interpret scripture let me say that again science cannot dictate how we interpret scripture 500 years ago this would have been as true as it is today even though between then and now they've made this this discovery of the link right but science cannot dictate how we interpret scripture that entirely violates the principle of sola scriptura Instead, Scripture alone has the authority to dictate what we can and should believe about science. Next, we're going to take a look at the descendants of Ham. The sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Oh, there are some familiar names, and they're easy to pronounce, right? The sons of Cush. Seba, Saba, Havilah, Sabta, Raama and Sebtekah, the sons of Raamah, Sheba, and Dedan, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalnek in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Er, Kala and Resen between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, H- uh, Lahabim. Here's a tough one. Path Pathrusim. Man, Egypt, come on, man. <laughs> uh, path Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Ah, oh, if you know your Bible, these names are starting to sound familiar, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboiim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Whew, Kurt, you sure you don't want to do the next part? Okay. If you studied the Bible, even in moderate depth... If you know your Bible, if you, especially if you know your Old Testament history, you'll recognize a lot of those names, right? A lot of those names should sound familiar. What we see here is that the sons and the descendants of Ham settled mostly in Africa, Egypt, and the eastern Mediterranean region and southern Arabia. Verse 6 tells us of Cush, a name that Should be familiar if you know your Old Testament history. Uh, It tells us about Cush. And as we get further along in the Bible, we learn about these people called the Cushites. Well, this is where they came from. In fact, Moses married a woman who was a Cushite. Uh, Now, you might be asking, where would this possibly be? Where is the land of Cush? Or where do the Cushites come from? It's what we refer to today as Ethiopia. So we see that Cush was the father of a man named Nimrod. And notice what it says about Nimrod. Notice that it says that Nimrod was the first on earth to be a mighty man. And of course, he means the first on earth after the flood, because we saw that term back in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 6 when it was talking about uh, the, the problems, the evil that was rising up in the world in the presence of mighty men. So, what does that mean for him to be a mighty man? Scholars aren't sure. It could mean that he was a king, and he was. It could mean that he was a warrior, and he was. Or it could indicate that he was a very big man, like in, in terms of his size, maybe even a giant. You know, some, some scholars believe that he may have been a giant. We're told that he was also a hunter and started several earthly kingdoms. So we're not exactly sure what it means to be a mighty man. But we do know that he was a king, and he did plant the seeds of some kingdoms, some very big kingdoms. Among those nations, among those kingdoms is Babel. Anyone ever heard of the Tower of Babel? You will in a couple of weeks when we look at the Tower of Babel. As we're going to see in chapter 11, Babel was a city, a kingdom that Uh, By its foundations, from the, the very beginning, their purpose was to defy God. Their purpose was to be rebellious against God. God had commanded that the population, that humanity be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But part of the purpose of the kingdom of Babel was to prevent that from happening. Part of their purpose, explicitly stated, was to prevent the people from spreading out, to contain them. They defied God's purposes and they took steps to prevent God's purposes. They tried to take steps to prevent God's purposes from going forward. They defied God's commands. Nimrod, the son of Ham and the grandson of Noah, was the leader of that movement. He was the leader of that kingdom. Now you might get the idea when it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before God, that that's meant in a positive way, you know, to be a mighty hunter before God. But that word that gets translated before can also be translated as against. The idea is that uh, not that he stood for God, but that he stood against God. He would Set the lay the foundations for both Babylon and Nineveh, both of which would be completely godless cultures that hated God and that hated His people, that waged war against His people. Babylon was in fact so evil that the name Babylon would be used to refer, even in the end times, to the godless system of the world. When you get to the end of Revelation, when he's talking about the destruction of the nations, they're all referred to as Babylon. So even to this day, Babylon still exists. Even to this day, Babylon is surrounding us. It started with Nimrod. Among Ham's sons, we also see the name Egypt. Gee, I wonder where he settled, right? Yeah, we know where he settled. That's not hard to figure out. Of course, Egypt would end up enslaving God's people, God's chosen people, the Hebrews, and that would all come in due time, in due time, but they, like the the descendants of Cush, would be a completely pagan, completely godless, completely God-defying and God-hating culture. The next name is Put, and nobody's exactly sure where Put was Put. At least there's no consensus of, of any sort. No, nobody is exactly sure exactly who the Putites were or where they came from. Some speculate that it would be modern-day Libya. That's a possibility. But again, nobody is entirely sure. Last but not least, Ham was the father of Canaan. Canaan. And as we saw last week, Canaan was the one. he was the son of Ham who was cursed by Noah after Ham sinned against Noah. The Canaanites represented the worst of the worst of the worst in the world, especially in the minds of the Israelites and the names of the Canaanites, which we find between verses 15 to 19. Now, those are some names that are going to pop up over and over and over again, not only through the first five books of the Bible, but through, throughout Old Testament history. They were the enemies of God. And because they were the enemies of God, they were the enemies of God's people, as well. They would be the people that the Israelites would have to go in and deal with. You'll notice in verse 19 that Moses, who was the author of Genesis, is sure to tell us what the boundaries of the territory possessed by the Canaanites was. Why does he tell us so explicitly where the Canaanites' land was? Because that's the land that God is leading the Israelites to when Moses wrote this. These were the people they would be going against in war. These were the people that they would be facing. And this is where they came from. This is who they're related to. This is how they trace back to Noah. And we see that their cousins, all the grandchildren of Noah through Ham, they were all, all of them were wicked, godless, defiant people. And so when God told the Israelites to go into this promised land and to purge the land of the people of the land the Canaanites they should have known the Israelites should have known how wicked these people were they should have known at least two things they should have known number one that God meant business that God meant business and number two they should have known that these people were long overdue for an for a, for a dose of God's judgment they also should have known that God is the one who created it all that God is the one who owns it all and that God is sovereign and God has the right to give and God has the right to take and obedience to God isn't optional. Well, in the mind of the Israelites, it was, it was optional Now some people tend to get a little bit bent out of shape over the fact that God was sending in the Israelites to eliminate these people, to wipe them off the face of the earth. And some will even see it as an instance of ethnic cleansing, if you will. Racism. But you have to understand that God has the right to judge and to punish the wicked however He sees fit the fact that He doesn't eliminate everybody from the face of the earth because that describes every single one of us is only mercy. That is only common grace. They were doing what God instructed them to do. And even then, kind of half-heartedly, even then, they were less than faithful to what God instructed them to do. Rather than cleaning out and dishing out God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land that God led them to, the Israelites were often all too happy to just draw a compromise and to coexist. There's a hot word, right? Coexist with the people of the land to their own demise. Here's something for us uh, to consider, something very interesting for us to consider. Where was Ham a chapter ago? He was being delivered from God's wrath. He was witnessing the providential grace of God. He was on board the ark with Noah. God had showed Ham incredible mercy. Miraculous mercy. Unmistakably clear evidence of God's sovereign reign. And yet look at his legacy. Consider Ham's legacy. He is cold and calloused towards sin. We saw that in the last chapter, both in the life of his father and in his own life. And every single one of his children is completely godless. You would have thought that being delivered from the the wrath of God from being delivered from the flood, you would have thought that Ham's life, his mind, his heart, would have been drastically altered and that he would be quick to submit to what God calls him to do. He would be quick to be faithful to God. You would have thought that he would have been grateful toward God. And you would have thought that because his life was so drastically changed by not only witnessing, but experiencing God's grace... You would have thought that, man, he would have been quick to teach every single one of his sons how important it is to stay away from sin. You would have thought that he would understand after the flood how seriously God takes rebellion, God takes sin. He should have realized that sin, that defying God, comes with horrible, horrible consequences. But here we see a fuller picture of the darkness. Not only of Ham's heart, but of the human heart. Ham had every reason because of what he had experienced to fear God. And not only to fear God, but to love Him with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his strength, all of his mind, everything in his being. He had every reason to love and fear God that way. And yet, he didn't the greatest evidence in the world. He saw it. And He was not only unchanged, He was hardened by it. Regeneration requires a miracle. God must open the sinner's heart to believe without God's work. Even being rescued by God from a worldwide flood won't convince the hardened unbeliever Without God's work on the human heart, it is desperately dark, desperately wicked, and the, even the greatest evidence in the world will fail to persuade the unbeliever. Instead, that evidence will only further harden their hearts toward God, and that's exactly what happened with him. If you are in Christ, let me tell you something. You have witnessed the greatest miracle possible. You were dead in your sins. And yet through faith in Christ, you were brought to life. Now, I challenge you to go and do that with something else. Find a, find a you know, roadkill or something like that and make it come back to life. You can't. You would be amazed if somebody could actually do that, right? You'd say, wow, that, that's, that's a miracle. Indeed it would be. And if you are in Christ... You have experienced that miracle in your life. What has it done to you? What has it done to you? Has it changed you? Have your kids seen it? And is it changing them? Or has this great work of God hardened you? Has it hardened your kids? Has it hardened the people around you? Those are people to pray for and and to pray for ourselves if that's what happened to us. If we've seen God working miracles around us and we become hardened to it, that is only storing up judgment for ourselves. So be careful. Walk humbly before the Lord. Examine yourselves regularly. And ask yourself, what difference has God made? made in my life? Witnessing God's work firsthand. What difference has it made in my heart? So we've seen the lines of Japheth and Ham, and now we're going to look at the descendants of Shem. Starting in verse 21, to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam Asher Arpachshad Lud and Aram the sons of Aram Uz Hul Gether and Mash Arpachshad fathered Shelah and Shelah fathered Eber to Eber were born two sons the name of the one was Peleg that's a name that you're going to want to remember by the way for in his days the earth was divided and his brother's name was Joktan Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheleph, Hazamareveth, Jera, (laughs) Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimeleel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of. Sephar so to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the son, sons of Noah according to their genealogies in the nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now you know why for two days I kind of just stared blankly at this chapter wondering what I was going to do with this, but there's some very important information here. If you look back at verse 21, one of the names you'll see is Eber. He's the first descendant listed from Shem, and he would be the most significant of the sons of Shem as the name Eber is actually linguistically connected. It's related to the word Hebrew the word Hebrew. Thus, we see that Eber is seen as the father in a sense. He, he's, he's the link between Noah and Shem and the Hebrew people. And as we're going to see in the next chapter, a man named Abram would descend through Peleg, who descended from Eber, who descended from Shem, who descended from Noah. Abram would give rise to the people, of course, who would be known as the Israelites. Right? He would be, they would be known as the Israelites. They would be the descendants of Shem. And through them, the Messiah would come. The overarching truth of this chapter is this. It's that all of the nations... All of the nations and all of the ethnicities and all of the races of the world ultimately trace back to Noah and his sons, his three sons. We are all family. We are all interrelated. Our DNA all comes from the same source. And this is why racism, why something is as awful and as evil and as contemporarily uh, relevant, right? And It's a big thing in our, in our culture these days, but this is why racism is not only deeply, deeply, sinful. But why, it, why the idea that one race is somehow inherently superior to other races is just deeply, deeply, not only scientifically illogical, but it's wicked. It's flawed. As soon as an individual starts to believe that they are inherently you know, because of who they are, because of their ancestry, as soon as a person starts to believe that they are inherently better or more worthy than somebody else of a different color or a different nation or a different race, they have already proven that they are not. They are not better, they are not more worthy. One question that the skeptic might have in response to all of this is to ask, you know, okay, then why are there so many different races of people? You know, if you go across the earth, you see all these sorts of different races, people with different skin tones, and et, cetera, et cetera. and the answer is that ultimately there is really only one race, and that is the human race. That is a biblical answer. That is a biblical answer. You'll, you'll hear uh, you know, secular pundits say the same thing, that there, there's only the human race. Well, that's a biblical answer too. The Bible confirms that. There is only one race, and that is the human race. Unless you want to include angels, in which case, each of which is their own race, because God created them all individually. There is only one race, the human race. How different levels of melanin, and shades of pigmentation of the skin came about. The Bible isn't extremely explicit on that. It's possible that when God brought down the Tower of Babel, as we'll see in the next chapter, He not only confused their languages, right? There was a work of God that took place when the Tower of Babel came down. He confused their languages, but maybe He also gave them different skin tones, different shades of skin color, so that they would separate, so that they would disperse across the earth. It's also entirely possible that God blessed the nations, the, the, the people, uh, as they dispersed with different surface-level features in order to allow them or, or enable them to adapt to whatever climate or situation uh, they would be settling in. That's what some scholars believe. That's, that's plausible. That's possible. More likely than that, we can, we can at least know this much. Uh, be, be certain of this much and that is that Noah's DNA Noah's genetics his genetic composition allowed him to be the father of all the nations and so because we see different shades of skin color across the nations it's not much of a leap to conclude that God allowed him to produce children with the capability of producing different colors of skin and this would be similar to how you know an interracial couple can produce children that come in a, in a variety of different skin tones. It seems likely, given that God designed all of humanity to be diverse, creation to be diverse, that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with the ability to produce both dark-skinned children and white-skinned children and light-skinned children and everything in between. And so with that in mind, isn't it possible that Noah and his sons all had what we would refer to today as interracial marriages? Of course it's possible. But whatever the answer is to this question, whatever explains different ethnicities, different races, different skin tones, the point here is that we are all related. Related. The point here is that there's only one race and that is the human race and that humanity is diverse in its appearance by God's design. By God's design. And so with that established, we also have to understand that while we may be divided in one sense by geographical location or by language or by culture or separated by by oceans, you know, whatever the case may be, we are all united in our purpose. Every person, no matter what nation you are from, no matter what your ethnic heritage is, every single person who walks the face of the earth has one purpose in life, and that is to glorify God. That is to glorify God. To love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we're also united not only in that purpose, but we're we're united in our Rebellion against that purpose. We're united in our fallenness. Paul would say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 All. Every nation, every person from every nation. There's only one exception. And that's Jesus. There are no other exceptions. We are all sinners. We have all rebelled against the purpose that God designed us for. And thus we are all united in our need for God's grace. Paul would also explain God's plan for all of humanity in dispersing people across the face of the earth as he preached at the famous Areopagus in Athens on Mars Hill, speaking to pagans who had built an altar to the unknown God in an attempt to honor this unknown God. He would say this to them, in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, he had said, he said, the, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all humankind life and breath and everything. Do you see the unity there? He gave to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is the author of all life. He is the source of everything that exists. And we are all united in that that sense. In the sense that we all owe our existence to Him. Every person on the face of the earth has only one explanation for why they exist, and that is God. Every person as John would say about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 3, he said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Let me put that in layman's terms for you. If, if something began to exist, it was put there by God. It was put there by Jesus. He is the one who created everything that began to exist. Now you might say, okay, then who made God? If God made everything that exists, no, I didn't say God made everything that exists. God made everything that began to exist everything that began to exist, nobody made God. God is eternal. Paul continues in this, in this sermon on Mars Hill. He says, and he, God, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. I hope you see how huge this is. How, how significant what Paul's saying here is. The reason that God commanded Noah and his sons and, and everybody to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was to enhance the probability of people from all nations turning to Him, seeking after Him. We are both united in our fallenness, and yet we are also divided in our fallenness. Our fallenness is why there is division. That's why there, there are, there, there's animosity between different ethnic groups. And yet, all of humanity is united in the fact that there is only one solution to our broken relationship, not only with God, but with one another. And that one solution is the Gospel. The Gospel is the solution to the division that you see among the nations. In Christ, the nations which are divided and which wage war and harbor animosity against other nations are capable of being united. Through the Gospel, God extends mercy to all who will place saving faith in Jesus Christ. And this would include people from all the cultures, all the nations, all the languages and ethnic heritages of the world. Through the Gospel, though we are diverse in terms of our outward appearance, we are united as one by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone do you know that this is the goal of one of the goals of christ to unite the elect from around the world through faith in him what's the great commission jesus said this to his followers matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20 he said all authority in heaven and on earth in other words all authority that exists anywhere imaginable has been given to me Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, or obey, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Maybe you've never thought about it this way, but as we enter into the Christmas season, One of the things that that I start to do and and I I hope you start to do is to remember, to, to, to become mindful again, to remind ourselves of all the reasons that Jesus was born among us. Why He stepped out of eternity. Why it was necessary for Jesus Christ, the everlasting and eternal God, to condescend, to come down, to take on flesh, and to live a life of perfect obedience to the will of the Father. We need to look at why He did that because that's what Christmas is all about. And there are scores and scores of reasons. There are books that are filled with reasons that Jesus came and lived as a man, fully God and fully man. There are a lot of reasons, but one of them is this. To redeem and thereby thereby unite for Himself a people from among all the nations. All the nations. In Him are united those who in genesis chapter 10 we see are divided this is part of what christmas is all about because this is part of why jesus came to earth and lived as a as a human being fully god fully man why is it that different ethnicities, different people groups, and nations divide from one another and oppress one another, wage war against one another? Isn't this the history of the human race? It is. Indeed, it is. And yet, we must see how contrary it is to God's design for humanity. Ultimately, racism traces back to pride, it's sin. And the solution is that we must repent and in faithfulness to God, we must look beyond the cultural and ethnic differences and differences in skin tone that we see among other people, among all of humanity. We should understand, however, that what unites also divides. Let's suppose that I were to say, everybody who's bald, uh, stand up. There'd be like three of us, right? We'd have like three, maybe four of us, maybe. Three or four of us, right? We'd be, we'd be united by our baldness. woohoo, right? We'd be united, but we'd also be divided from everybody else. You see how that works? What unites also divides. What unites also divides. We'd be divided from people who, who have hair. Sorry for you, you know. I, I kind of like it. But likewise, friends, listen, if you are following Jesus, if you have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, make no mistake about it, it will divide you from those who don't. There is a cost. There is a steep, steep cost. You will not look like the world in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you act. You you will be divided. This is part of the essence of following Jesus. To be in Christ is to be united with all of God's people, but it's also to be divided from those who persist in their rebellion against their Maker, also known as the mission field. I leave you with two questions today. First of all, do you desire to grow in Christ likeness? Do you desire to love the things that God loves and to hate the things that God hates? Do you desire to be obedient unto God? Or is your desire to just blend in with the rest of the world in the way they think and speak and act? And secondly, Can you honestly say that you are doing everything within your power, within your means to be faithful to the mandates of the Great Commission? If not, what will you do? What's going to change to help motivate you to assist in bringing the gospel forth to the nations? To all the nations? What will you do to help the gospel spread not only abroad, but in your own neighborhood? In your own neighborhood? Here's a question that I had to struggle with. Is it easier for you to write a check to a foreign missionary than it is for you to walk across the street and share the gospel with your neighbor? It shouldn't be. God created all of humanity with the same purpose. We're all created in the image of God. And we're all created to walk in obedience to Him and to to, to therefore glorify Him in all of our ways. As His people, in Christ, we must be united in our determination to shine the light of the gospel, both at home and abroad. And we must remember that there is a cost to following Jesus, that it will divide us from those who don't but by the power of the Spirit dwelling within you. You can. You can. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for even a chapter like this with names that are difficult to pronounce and uh, the, the, the way that it often convolutes our understanding. Thank You for clarity. Thank You for understanding. Father, thank You for showing us the truths within this chapter. Thank You for showing us Your great plans and purposes. But Lord, we pray that it would not just be head knowledge, but that it would penetrate the depths of our hearts. That we would see the importance of fulfilling the Great Commission, of of being obedient to the Great Commission and everything else you commanded us to do. You are the God of the nations and salvation is in no other name but Jesus. So Lord, break our hearts so that we would have the courage and the desire, the brokenheartedness to share the source of life and forgiveness, not only with our neighbors, but with the nations of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.